There's this understanding that, that culture can kind of come from anywhere and everywhere. The responsibility that we have as people to make sure that every single little voice gets heard is tremendous. And in the digital space, my gosh, even more so. In a culture that so often fosters division and contempt, how can we use media to build bridges with those around us? What can we do to move beyond racial, political, and ideological echo chambers? In today's episode, Isaac Cuevas, Director of Immigration and Public Affairs for the Archdiocese of Los Angeles, shares how his own expertise in marketing and communications led him to bring connection and change into the church's culture. True engagement in social media is not just following and liking and retweeting or reposting, but it's knowing who's the person on the other end and how can you bring each other up? How can you collaborate? How can you do more? And that was just from a very basic marketing standpoint. If you now incorporate faith into that, my gosh, what a better way than to use social media, use these channels, use these avenues to profess your faith, to align yourself with people who may or may not necessarily see eye to eye with you, but to find the commonality in the things that you do agree with and, and, and you, you can support and try to grow and try to build on that. We each share a personal responsibility to make sure all voices can be heard so that all can find their place in the church and in society. By listening and serving the rich diversity of the church, we can foster greater understanding and build a bridge to the broader world. This is Living the Call. Isaac Cuevas, God bless you, brother. Welcome to the show. Deacon Charlie, thank you so very much. It's so good to have you here and your son. Thank you, we, likewise. We, we've had, a, you know, it's funny, uh, Father Agustino Torres, which kicked off the new series of this show. When he was here in the studio, he actually had somebody sitting right in that chair as well. And it's nice to have a little bit of an audience. So also welcome to your son. Yeah, uh, I, I, he, you know, um, when I told him what I was doing and that I was coming here, uh, not going to lie, a little nervous about coming here. Sure. Um, I'm a fan of the podcast. And so... Uh, you know, it's different being in this in the chair. It is. It's easy to be the guy asking the questions, right? Sometimes it's tougher to be the one who's uh, who's there. But uh, but no, it's all good. That's what one of the things I love most about this medium is the fact that at least the way that I utilize it, it's not an interview, right? This is really just a conversation, and we're allowing people to kind of have a little bit of a snapshot into the lives of the people that I get a, the privilege of actually talking to, like you. Um, and you know, there's so many places that I could start with you, brother, but. Um, one thing that I thought was really interesting, just to kind of as a way in, and you tell me if you want to go in a different direction, I'm all good as well. But you are a recovering film marketer, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> On some level. And, uh, you know, film marketers, uh, they love a good origin story. And I love your origin story, which I, I confess I didn't even know, right? The fact that, you know, you have this great story of coming into this country as a, like a very, very young kid, right? right I mean, yeah. you were basically a toddler walking across um, or, or coming across. And now here you are leading the nation's largest diocese in the area of, among other things, immigration. And I just, I love that origin story and kind of the 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 you know kind of cosmic humor of God in some of these things, but maybe we could start with that, sure. like that that kind of background. And, and by the way, and how did I not know it? Yeah, no, ab absolutely. So um, so yeah, my my mom and I came here when I was two. Um, she she met my biological dad in Mexico. Uh, they fell in love, and you know, growing up in the old country, the way things were in Mexico, you people didn't really talk about uh, sex or you know how the birds and the bees, these things, and so um, they fell in love. Mm -hmm. uh, next thing you know, she's pregnant, and their natural progression was to you know get married. But um, unfortunately, or, or or fortunately, depending on how you want to look at it, the families uh, intervened. And they were kind of, uh, you know, they were separated. They they weren't able to uh, to stay together. So I was born in Mexico, like my mom was the black sheep, if you will, you yeah. know, because she was so young, seventeen at the time, mm -hmm. uh, had me, and and she just kind of really didn't want to put up with with being, you know, having that stigma. So she came to the U.S. Um, really, kind of came on her own. She had a sister who was here, uh, who helped us with the transition, but um, but she came on a, on a on a tourist visa. We overstayed. We were undocumented for many years, and had it not been for the Reagan administration and and you know reform uh, at that time, which is the amnesty program, we, yeah, I we, remember. You know, we we wouldn't have been able to uh, to adjust our status. Hmm. And and granted, even when that happened, 
Uh, my mom came here, met my uh, stepdad, who I grew up with and, and, you know, fell in love, had my brother and my sister here. And even through through that process, my dad was, you know, kind of like, well, he's, he's, he's a little more old, more old school and he wanted to... Uh, he wanted to go back to Mexico at some point and said, "Nah, do we really need to spend the five hundred dollars on, on our immigration status if we're right. just if we're just going to wind up going back to Mexico?" And my mom, being you know kind of w- the wisdom that she had, was like, "You're crazy. We're we're not going back we're to Mexico. This, yeah. and, and of course, we're going to figure out how to make you know five hundred dollars and get this to happen." Mm-hmm. And and you know, lo and behold, here we are. So I, I, my, my brother is one that can remember memories from when he was two and three years old. I can't like my earliest memories, maybe six, six years old, five or six years old. Do you remember, are you conscious of any of that experience when you were first coming over? Was there any sense of that at all? No, not yeah. really. My, my first memories were being here. Uh, my first memories were, you know, the, the, the collective family that we had here. Um, a very, very humble upbringing, you know, um, my mom worked fast food places and kind of was just trying to figure it out like yeah. anybody else. So yeah, no, it, 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 uh, I didn't even realize that I was an immigrant or, or different, uh, until much later in, in life when, you know, we, growing up in Southern California, going to school with other kids that were, you know, different, different race, races, ethnicities, you name it. Um, you know, all of a sudden it was like, Hey, there's, there's something here. And, and there's, I understand this melting pot a little bit better now right. because, I had a Korean friend, we'd go to his house and, you know, there were certain kind of foods and they'd come to our house and, and, you know, when we'd offer them a quesadilla, they'd be like, what's that? Like, how does that, you know, what is, sure. how does that work? What do you eat that with? And, you know, um, my best friends growing up were Filipino and I'll never forget when, uh, you know, we sat down for dinner one time and, you know, my mom served us typical protein beans and rice and my filipino friend looked over at me and said you guys eat rice too like <laughs> right like it was this oh my gosh it's just you know? such like a, a great uh, binder and it's one of these insights that is part of that immigrant experience right when somebody from wherever right philippines or africa yeah. or whatever has that unique food and then you have to take that unique food you know bring your other friends into that experience and there's always a little bit of like is this going to be okay and then so i can totally relate to the idea of oh my gosh you guys do this too and right. having that be a moment of connection for you and 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 also a moment of insecurity i would say because for sure because this is before the chipotles of the world this is before yeah you know and anything is this is before latino culture was mainstream so you know having a having a burrito was not something that was sure it was exotic so, so much of the world has changed with respect to this, to the whole idea. I mean, look, this has always been pluralistic as a country. We've always had the benefit of the immigrant experience and bringing all these great foods and cultures and musics in from from other parts of the world. But it seems to me that maybe the generation coming up now, you know, like your son's age, you know, Gen Z, millennial, that kind of thing. They're living in a world where this kind of diversity, this tapestry is just like a standard thing. Is that is that my impression or is that your experience as well? No, absolutely. And, and going back to your question about being, you know, a, a, a recovery uh, marketeer, mm-hmm. um, I think that's that's a big part of the reason why I decided to pivot out of marketing is um, I and I'm, I'm probably going to say something a little a little marketing controversial here. But I love it. I know and understand that that, uh, you know, 20 years ago when I was doing Hispanic marketing, Hispanic marketing was a thing because there was a, a very direct audience that you can go towards. Right. Um, language was a very straightforward way of delineating a message. In the course of the last couple of years, I noticed that my children are, while they are very tuned into their uh, ethnicity, while they're very tuned into being Latino, they are not growing up, quote unquote, Hispanic. Hmm. So where is the Hispanic market going to be in 20 years, 20 years from now? Is it really going to be Hispanic marketing? And this is why I pivoted and, and went towards finding a more a more cultural way of of interpreting marketing and, and using culture as a basis for for marketing and, and mm. what is culture food is culture music sure. is culture religion is culture and I was fortunate enough to grow up um, believe it or not I was actually I was evangelical growing up and became Catholic when I married my wife 20 years ago oh interesting okay and so you're a convert so I'm a, yeah. so I'm a convert okay and of course the math proves that I'm more Catholic than she is That's now. right. And, and you know more about your faith. Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yet, just like being an immigrant, I mm-hmm. still don't ever feel like I'm fully grounded in my, like I, I'm, I always need to learn more about my faith, mm. right? But growing up evangelical, I had that ability to kind of 
you know, interpret my faith as well. And when we're doing marketing, that's all we're doing. We are experts in interpretation of messages of uh, uh, taste, feeling, sound, you name it, all of these things that we utilize to try to create action, whether that's selling something, whether that's buying into an idea. And so when this opportunity came up to work at the diocese, you know, I looked at immigration like I would any other campaign. Yeah. It's, it's an opportunity to, to share a message, use whatever tools were uh, available to me to, to change perception. And, and um, it, it's just, it's a campaign. I don't, I don't, when I was doing movie marketing, there was a great expression uh, that, uh, that one of the executives at Warner Brothers shared. And, uh, and she said, you know, we, as, as marketeers, we don't need to love our movie. We need to love our campaign. Hmm. Many times we get brought a project that we don't necessarily love. Yeah, it's true. But you have to build the strategy and the creative and the communications plan and all that, and you can fall in love with that even if you don't like the movie. So in, in approaching immigration and the topic of immigration, I, could, I understood clearly that it was a very divisive topic, especially four years ago, you know, in, in the previous administration, mm-hmm. um, which is when I, I got to the diocese. So I understood how polarizing that could be at the time. And, <laughs> That's quite an entree, I mean, to come in in the thick of that. Look, immigration's always been an issue, and the Latino community in particular has always been has been focused, among many other issues, in the issue of immigration. But I feel like from the times when we were kids, and, you know, you, you mentioned the, the Reagan administration as a kind of a backdrop, I just remember it, like, I, I don't remember it hitting the kind of crescendos that we've seen of late you know, with people being, with it being such a divisive topic, right? Obviously, the, the last administration had a lot to do with that, but I almost feel like this idea of what an immigrant is, who an immigrant is, I should say, and an immigrant's contribution to what this country's always been has almost been cast into some kind of doubt. It's either like taken for granted or it's not appreciated or something. I don't know, but there just seems like there's something different that's happened over the last many years. And I recall coming up, I don't know. Well, and, and it's funny because you can find a nuance in that pretty mm-hmm. much in any, any part of history, right? For those people that, that love movies as much as I do, there's, a, there's an amazing documentary out there called Donut King right now. A friend of mine uh, is, is the uh, executive producer of the film, not to plug the, yeah, the project. Yeah, no, go ahead. But yeah. it goes into the nuance of uh, Cambodians that came to this country and how they were able to kind of cement their place here in the United States through donut shops. Something really? so simple and so 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 basic, yet they created an opportunity for them to for themselves to become entrepreneurial, uh, self-sustaining. Many of the many of the sponsor families that allowed them to come into the country and 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 find refuge were churches, uh, Lutheran churches, Baptist churches, Catholic churches, um, you name it, and and then there there was a, a network created of of getting themselves sustained into donut shops, the donut business, the donut business, which huh. which transformed yeah. that that business. And as a result of this, you know, we now have like the pink boxes that you see that are like iconic with donuts, which you know and understand is automatically. That a, is that an African thing? That's no, 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 no. That was just that was a money saving thing. Oh, um, but they gave us that, is what you're saying. But but it became a branding thing. It be- Interesting. It, it inadvertently became a branding thing, mm-hmm. and it allowed a whole community to thrive and to flourish. Uh, when you know, really, genocide was happening back home, and people mm-hmm. didn't understand that. Um, politically speaking, people didn't know, but they had an amazing story of of fleeing and 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 trying to find a new place and trying to find a home, while at the same time having to deal with the challenges of being different, right? Being mm-hmm. here and being very different. Just out of curiosity, is it is it based on the fact that one person came and then started one donut business, and then that became the sort of entree to countrymen and women who came to, to it to that industry? In other words, like was that the the beginning of it, or was yes, there another? I, re- I don't want to give away too don't, much. Yeah. It's it's spoiler. It's a, it's a great documentary. You got to check mm-hmm. it out. Um, but yes, it's it's basically one person who saw and understood the potential of what this could be, and how to turn it into something with really kind of a, a duality in culture, right? One, something sustaining for families who needed it at the time. Yeah. And then two, taking advantage of the opportunity that uh, that this quick service uh, need was available to people here in Southern California and different parts of the West Coast and, and, and what that meant to the industry, right, with the Dunkin' Donuts of the East Coast and where that, where that clash came to be. 
So you, you're a guy who, I mean, just even in the, the last few minutes of, of telling a little bit of your story, we could kind of put under the umbrella one way, shape or form of somebody who's really adept at pivoting. Okay. Because I think about the idea of, you know, growing up, first of all, the, the whole national story, right? So the immigrant story is one of, of in a way of pivot of, uh, of taking on an occult, you know, and, and acculturating in a certain sense, the, you know, the attributes and lifestyle and way of being of, of the country in which you're now in. So there's an aspect of that. Secondarily, there's this kind of faith-based aspect, right? You're kind of coming up Protestant. You eventually, uh, you know, become Catholic. There's a pivot there. There's a marketing pivot, right? When you're like doing the Latino thing and then you, you're, you're saying, hey, actually there's something changing here. We have to look at this in a different way. And then lastly, this idea of really leaving um, maybe the secular world, to put it that way, and it taking on this more di- this diocesan role and really being focused on that product. So like that's a lot of pivots for one. Mostly <laughs> people will do one of those maybe in their life, but sure. you've done a number of them. Have you ever thought about that just in a in in a broader context? Um I, I have and I and I think I always I always knew it in the back of my mind, mm-hmm. right? When I was when I was growing up and, and in college. I was in the music business. Uh, radio was my first passion. You got a great um, voice for radio, by you, the way. Thank you, thank yeah. you. I, I wound up at a Spanish language station of all things, um, having been this this kid who grew up around, you know, American pop music with you know leaning very heavy towards hip hop and and this West Coast kind of sound and, and things that ca- that happened out here. But I also knew that I wasn't. Um, I, I I was managing a a group at some point and talking to the to the leader of the of this uh, of this music group. He said, "Hey, you know what's what's your plan? What's mm-hmm. your goals long term? Ten years, twenty years?" And I said, "You know, I, I really don't know." And he said, "Wow, that's awesome." And I thought, <laughs> and I thought, you know, what like you I, I was a little embarrassed that I that I really didn't know and didn't have a plan. And he said, "Well, it's great because somebody like me who wants to be an artist and that's all I strive for, I'm either going to make it or I'm not. You have this ability to kind of find your place and your mm. way and 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 make your path." Wherever you go, I can really see you doing that. And that stuck with me. It's a right? gift, like adaptability. I mean, you know, the the ability to be able to take on a variety of different things in whatever way. I mean, it's definitely, I can see how that lays the groundwork for some of the things you have done. Absolutely. And it also, you know, it, I think it also allowed me to really lean in on my family mm. and look to them for the support because without, obviously when you have that responsibility now of a family and what you're going to do and, and how you're going to provide you can't make decisions just kind of on the fly and say, well, yeah. I don't want to do this anymore. I'm just going to jump into this. And, and you know, when the diocese came to me and, and you know, offered me this position, I kind of hesitated. And I was, uh, I was an independent contractor at the time, had my own business, was doing really, really well. But, you know, it, it kept kind of nudging at me and it kept mm. bugging me a little bit. And, and I knew that there had to be something there that I really had to take into consideration. So I, I truly sat down and, and prayed and sure. and, and tried to listen to, you know, what God was telling me to do. And Amen. here we are. Was there a particular contribution when you thought about the opportunity? Because that's a big change, right? I mean, it's a big change. You know, I've, I've uh, described it in the past as almost like leaving the empty glitz of the secular world for a really fulfilling toil within the, in the religious context, right? It's a big change. Huge. Was there, was there like a particular contribution you were excited to be willing to make? In other words, were you going like, I can't wait to get in there because of X thing? Or was it just like a kind of a soft nudging that was like, I just feel like I'm no longer here. That means I'm here. Like how, how did that happen? Was it like an urgency or was it a kind of a soft fade into that there was definitely a hesitancy i'm not gonna lie okay um and so i think it was it was more gradual and more soft um and once i was there and once i i knew and i understood kind of like the playing field i think there was moments of kind of aha and uh of understanding that i was going along the right path and i'll give you an example um yeah we had a we created a a passport workshop Right, uh, the State Department found out some of the work that we were doing. They read an LA Times article about uh, uh, things that we were doing with the with the TPS community, uh, the Tepesianos, um, temporary protective status, and they heard all the great work we were doing in Los Angeles. And they came to us and said, "Hey, um, we we need a partner in this. We are now now that this administration is being so aggressive about deportations, more and more people are choosing to self-deport. When they choose to self-deport." They take along their children, and sometimes they don't bother getting their children passports. Mm. 
So now you have U.S. citizens, children, right, who are going back to their parents' country of origin, and they don't have a valid ID other than a uh, birth certificate in their hand. So now what happens is how do you prove that that child and that birth certificate match? Right. Yeah. And furthermore, when they show up at an embassy, the U.S. embassy now has the responsibility of trying to verify that process. And it's so much easier if they just had a passport even as they're leaving. Hmm. So what inevitably wound up happening, right? This just mind blown. Think about this. A U.S. citizen now becomes the undocumented person in another country. Flipping the script. How ironic, right? Yeah. And so when they explained this to us, we said, well, yeah, of course, we can, we can do this campaign and we can do this project. And, and, you know, it was very instrumental in making sure that we created awareness around the responsibility that we have, that anyone has, about making sure their U.S.-born child has proper documentation for any reason. Mm. Heaven forbid parents were to get deported and that child stays, and now what happens to that child here? Or, or again, you choose to self-deport. But just something as simple as having proper ID is so necessary and so crucial, and yet something that people don't think about. So yeah. when we created that campaign and we worked with the State Department on that, um, I asked what would be, like, what would be a successful metric if 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 we did a a passport workshop. You know, what would be considered a success? Obviously, being a marketer, you're always mm-hmm. trying to figure out KPIs, you know, what's, right? They said, look, if we got between you know fifty to a hundred uh, applications in, that would be awesome. That would be huge. With with the small army of people doing this ministry and going out and really pushing this over the course of many many months, in one day we were able to turn around two hundred and eighty seven passports. Wow all for children, and it was a huge and tremendous success. And that's where I kind of knew and realized, like there's something here that, that, that the church has and can offer communities mm-hmm. that has so much more value and, and can matter uh, in a person's life tremendously without even realizing that they need it. Do you think that there were things that you could see because of your experience out in the secular world and maybe even specifically in marketing and publicity that maybe give you an edge inside of these different organizations and maybe don't have that kind of experience? I mean, how, how has it been a benefit to you? It's, it's been a blessing and a curse, honestly. It's uh, a blessing because, yes, you, you take an event and you take a campaign and, again, you you try to figure out what are your goals and how do you reach those goals, right? You need mass media, you need a broad method of, of communication, but you also need that army of people that are going to do all the minutia in between, right? Yeah. Everything that needs to get done. So that part was was very much a, a strength and something that was very useful. The challenges were that it's the church and it's a very slow moving, very slow evolving uh, uh, culture. So... I come from a world, especially, you know, having, having been in, in both the studio world, but also in the agency world, uh, the studio world also runs very slow. The bigger the corporation, the slower the process and, and the more political, you know, you have to navigate the landmines. When you're at an agency, you get to go quick, right? You can go from idea to action in, in just a few steps. So it was trying to figure out the balance mm. between those two things. I see myself as a ministry agency within the diocese, right? Yet I still have to navigate the, 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 the church, the church, yeah, the politics of what that means and how to get those things done. Uh, my business partner, it's funny, we, we had a conversation. He's not Catholic. He's not necessarily religious at all. We'll work on him. We'll work on him. He's my project. I always tell him. It's like, don't worry about it. Long enough, you'll, you'll figure it out. But, um, you know, we we're having a conversation about an engagement that we had for an organization that was itself Catholic. Very rare for us. Most of our work is secular. But in this case, this organization, which was basically a media company, if you were to think of it that way, they create, you know, books and that kind of thing sure. and videos and all that. They were looking for ways to help serve the parishes and to drive more engagement with the parishes, right? And here my, you know, non-Catholic, non-religious business partner looks at this and says, well, you know, it just seems like these people are not very excited by the liturgy. And like, you know, maybe we should have, you know, we should recommend, you know, music and rock bands and all this other stuff, right? So he, he's throwing these things out. And I'm trying to explain, I said, you know, there's like a 10 second explanation, there's a 10 minute, and then there's like a 10 week explanation right. for why that will never happen because you're dealing, when you're dealing with the church, this is the point that I wanted to make. You're not just dealing with an organization that has 
these things of marketing, et cetera, et cetera. But you're also dealing with a liturgical organization. You're dealing with a spiritual. In some cases, you know, the theology of the church teaches it's a supernatural entity. You're dealing with all these things. And here you are. The canonical opponents. The canonical. You're, you're working in the thick of this. And where you may see a great campaign, you could trip 100 wires and go, wait a minute. This is why it doesn't work liturgically, canonically, whatever. And so I was it, just when you what you just mentioned, I've had to explain or try to some of those dynamics to people who are outside that world, but it's really hard to explain that you're not, it's like, not like working at whatever, ABC or something where it's ultimately about the content, the customer and the money. Like there's other things at play here. It's got to be a, a challenge in a way to kind of be in the thick of all that. It is. And I think working, so our office, the Office of Life, Justice and Peace, which my office is a part of the the Office of Immigration Affairs, think of the Office of Life, Justice and Peace as a, as, as a department, right? And our whole goal in the office is to for, is to create leaders out of those people that are in our parishes doing the work, right? Those people, those those precise people that you're talking about that that uh, they they want to do ministry, they believe in the mission, they understand, but sometimes they get stuck, yeah, and sometimes they don't know how to invite other people on board to to accomplish this mission. So a lot of what we try to do is to get them to realize and to understand that. You know, as Catholics, there's no um, uh, single approach saint, right? There's no, mm. there's no, no saint who only mm-hmm. focused on one single topic. So the tapestry of different things. So even if a pro-life issue is is their passion, mm-hmm. right? It doesn't mean it has to start stop there. It means there's a lot more that they can incorporate. It means that there's a lot more that they, they need to be aware of. Yeah, and that's the first step in being accessible and being inviting into ministry. So for for that's just within the church. For people who don't understand that and who on the are on the outside. It's yeah. It's you know, it's it's I mean that's evangelization. It is. That's how you bring them on board and you you showcase the fact that look, there's there's passion here. It may not be the passion you think there is, but there's passion here and what mm. we need to do is add sunlight and water and right. love and care to that passion and hope that it grows into a much bigger garden. We sow the seeds and God gives the growth. It's funny that you mentioned that whole idea of this kind of like one person has a passionate thing, but it's, you know, there's a variety of other things. I mean, that in a way is almost a starting point to explain the faith, at least I've found, right? This idea of universality, of this diversity, cultural, et cetera, and even spiritual, right? Um, Again, conversations I've had with non-Catholics, people will ask me, well, you know, what are the differences, you know, Franciscan and Benedictine, and like you explain, well, there are different ways different expressions of the same faith, right? So in a way, it's like the starting point of how to consider Catholicism, right? Or or, or the church, I guess, broadly, because you're dealing with it spiritually and institutionally, is that idea of diversity. It has to be the starting point. Otherwise, you're going to run aground pretty fast going, well, I don't like this and I don't like that. You know what I mean? Because not everybody's the same t- cup of tea. Absolutely. And now you got to that point, I'm going to tell you, Deacon, that um, this is exactly what I was afraid of mm-hmm. in coming here. All right. Um, I understand Franciscan. I understand the <laughs> Jesuits. I'm I'm getting to know the Dominicans. Yeah. Above and beyond that, I'm still. I feel like I'm still in this infancy of what uh, of what my faith is. So, but I think the, I think the point of it though is that there's there's a rich tapestry, right? And that that the church gives expression to a lot of different voices that have different charisms, and that's the point is that we all are different, yeah. right? But we are also united and one and together, and I think that's the idea. And you know, the the thing with with uh, religious orders is there's also new ones. You know, um, my parish is run by uh, is now a religious parish. That order is something like 35 years old. It's brand new from a church standpoint, right? So they're still... And what's the order? It's called Our Lady Star of Evangelization. It's based in Italy. And these... It's so funny to think about because I asked, you know, the pastor, I said, well, tell me about your charism, about your spirituality. And his answer was basically like, you know, we're kind of still figuring that out. And it's true. It takes centuries sometimes, right? That makes me feel so much better. The Benedictines, man, they've been doing this since the 500s. You know what I mean? So it takes a minute to kind of develop what these things are and... um, um, and that's part of the beauty for me that I think that's why I, that's what I dig about diversity to begin with. And let me ask you a question. Your brother's yeah. Dominican. 
No, Benedictine. Oh, he's a Benedictine. Mm-hmm. Okay. I, how did he find that order and what, what called him? So he, you know, they say that the monks discern, depending on who you ask, but his answer would be that you discern a monastic call first, like a call to go out to the desert, a call to be alone with God, a call to be in prayer and to really make your contribution and your gift of your life to the world, just being prayer for other people. That's like a calling that's very deep, you know, in you. And so first you're called to the desert, which is what he did. He was a, you know, a novice and a postulant and all that stuff for years before he discerned a call to the priesthood, which he then uh, went on to the track, you know, was ordained a deacon, was ordained a priest. But a lot of times, you know, you, you may not get that call, but you always get the monastic call if you're a monk, right? And then there's, there's some part of it, obviously, which is an attraction to the founder of the order and maybe, you know, reading what their things are. If you read St. Francis, you're like, hey, man, I get that we're going to be barefoot and walking around and feeding the poor and consider it a blessing to go the whole day getting our butts kicked for God. Like, that's part of what makes you Franciscan. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm, so like mm-hmm. you get to understand those things by looking at the life of the of the leaders. But but I just love that stuff. And again, to your earlier point, if the person's on the outside looking in, you have to be very pastoral at how you deliver this stuff because it, there's so much. Of course. And you have to like like where do I start? But there's also such such a beauty in in the journey on how you get there, right? Yeah. Um, especially for clergy, because where where does that call come from? Where does What's, what's that moment? What's that aha for, for them to all of a sudden decide this is the way my life is going to go? Well, that's why I asked you about the whether it was a kind of a fa- a slow thing or whether it was a moment where you're like, you know what? I'm kind of putting the advertising and the promotion and the Hollywood and the studio thing. I'm going to use those tools now to apply them to the kingdom because you know, that for me, it was a series of like synchronous steps, at least that I think of looking in reverse that led me to say, I want to be a deacon and kind of get into this world. But, but like, that's, it's, it's a big move. I think a lot of people who are trying to live a faith life in the, in, in the secular world, look at something like what you did and go like, wow, I could never do that. Oh yeah, absolutely. Like absolutely. when you go to a cocktail party and somebody's like, Hey Isaac, what's going on? I haven't seen you in 10 years or whatever it is. Like, I'm sure you've had that conversation a hundred times. Yeah. And, and how does that go? It, it usually goes, yeah, I'm, I'm working for the Catholic Church now. And then after they, you know, scrunch their face and go, really? What are you, like, what are you doing? Like, marketing purpose? for the crowd? Yeah. Well, like, are you a priest now? Is that, that's usually the number two question. Right? Mm. Are you, and, and it's like, no, this is what I do. And this is, you know, I, I have my immigrant journey. I have my immigrant story. It was a very natural thing for me to, to jump into. And, and yeah, I take all those those skills and, and those things that I learned about uh, about culture and I, I apply them here. So it it's, it's a definitely a, interesting conversation piece but um but i also i think if you would have asked me that 10 years ago yeah i would have been like yeah no i'm not that's not that's not for me that's not the way i'm going and, why um i don't know because it was so it was so foreign to me it was so foreign to me my gosh i mean again i, I became catholic when i married my wife i became more catholic when my kids started taking communion and and, and i wasn't taking communion right and even that process of me getting confirmed was like so unique, right? It was this like ugh, getting all. That's all right. No, 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 I didn't realize that I was I was confirmed and baptized as a baby. Yeah. So I show up, you know, after doing all my RCIA classes and like you know weeks and weeks and months, and um, and Deacon Arnie over at uh, Holy Angels who was awesome and was like, you know, Chico, I need your paperwork. Bring it, <laughs> you know, and and uh, with this Cuban with this Cuban voice, and so I got the paperwork from Mexico, and they they brought it over, and he looks at it, and it's like. You got your sacraments. Bubble, you, you're confirmed. I'm like, what? so I, I don't come or like, what's the deal? What do you, wow. you know? And he's like, no, 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 you, you come. Don't worry. Like, you know, I still, it still hadn't really sunk in what that meant. So, mm. so we do the vigil mass. Amazing. Awesome. Great. And at the end of mass, they do this introduction and name all the people who are coming into the church for the first time. And then. That's all right. You're gonna have to, I love it. No, you're gonna I'm not going to edit a oh, thing. Are you kidding me? I want lots of crying. So, so Father Michael, yeah, doesn't mention my name, right? Uh huh. Um, and I was like, oh, this is what he meant. Like, this is I get it because you're already there. Because I'm already, the... I'm already there. Like, oh, okay, cool. Like, no big deal, right? But still, like, uh, yeah. But I felt like I worked for it. Yeah. And then at the end, he gave me my own special like mention, and it was oh, like, oh, beautiful. Dude. 
And isn't that right there? I mean, look, not every priest gets it right like that, but I mean, that's kind of how God is, right? You sort of, you're expecting like, oh, just give me, it's like the prodigal son, right? I just want to eat the like little pig scraps. And meanwhile, <laughs> God like runs out of the balcony and like gives you everything he's got. That's right. the ex, that's the extravagance of God. And we get little winks of it with, with what that good priest actually did at that moment. I never would have guessed that that meant so much. Wow. Wow. That's deep. And, you know, that doesn't happen for a lot of young, I mean, in the East, in, uh, you know, you'll, you'll have the rites of initiation all given at the same time. A little baby will be baptized and given the Eucharist too, and confirmed simult- all, all at the same time. They're like little yeah. babies, but it seems like you got, you know, that was, what a blessing that was. And even my sponsor at the time, a uh, guy from media, you know, um, guy that I grew up with doing radio. And when I was like trying to find a sponsor and was like trying to figure it out and reached out to him and he was like, yeah, of course. Mm. Like a guy who was so grounded in his faith and knew and he was like, dude, of course. Mm. And here I felt like ah, I'm asking a huge favor of somebody to take time out of their data. You know what I mean? It's like, it's, it's a, like, it's a gift, man. It's a gift you're giving to somebody to help you actually do that. If they, if they have their head screwed on straight, that's what it is. Yeah. It's amazing. That's amazing. I wonder, like, at, so you, you you come into the church now, and does that does that blossom your uh, your your like th- does your faith begin to kind of grow? Do you become more curious about the faith? Do, do these things start to sort of like uh, apparent to you what's happening, or again, is it is it more of a kind of a gradual thing? It gives me an understanding of how to how to approach different people where they are in their faith, right? for people who've grown up Catholic and have been cradle Catholics, and they come into these topics and these conversations about, you know, around immigration, for example. Hey, I don't want people breaking the law. Hey, I don't want this. Hey, I don't want that. And, you know, and all I can do is sit there and listen. And then all of a sudden turn around and say, look, I understand that that's your political view completely. But how do you now look at the topic if we had to look at it from our faith? From that mm. lens of faith. If Jesus was standing right here and we were talking about this, what would you do? What would you say? And all of a sudden it changes and shifts the dynamic so tremendously. In many cases, they might not have even thought about that. Absolutely that not. Absolutely it, not. That's the other one of the things that makes it tough to, you know, tough in a good way to be Catholic is that. You know, the faith demands a lot from us that doesn't necessarily conform neatly to, you know, the kind of things that, frankly, make make sort of regular living easy. Like, for example, the idea of, of a political party. Everybody agrees, hey, they've got their spots and their warts and whatever, but for the most part, I'm either this or I'm that, right? But being Catholic, truly Catholic, and especially if you know your faith— means that you really can't be bound by those things, right? It, the, the faith doesn't fit neatly into a political ideology, certainly not an American one. Definitely not. And, and, I, and I give my, my answer always is like, hey, man, I don't look left or right, I look up, right? That's kind of the idea. I love that. Um, but if you really live it, especially you, right, living in policy work, living in immigration, living in all these other issues of social justice, you've got to be at a point where you're saying, oh, yeah, I am pro-life and anti-abortion. Oh, yeah, I am anti-death penalty. I am pro-immigration, if that is such a thing that you could, uh, you know. Tell me about that, like how, managing that, that being Catholic in the midst of all these policy things that are trying to be like, suck you into one position or another. It's, it's all about, for me, it's all about the experience and trying to figure out where can I meet people in their place where they are, right? Um, their beliefs, their understandings, their passions, it's, it's, they, they have a reason and a rationale as to why, why they are where they are. Over the course of the last, I'm not even going to say four years because the, the, the administration, I think over the course of the last decade, there's been such an emphasis on, on pushing this, this approach to being confrontational mm-hmm. about things and people who don't agree with who you are and how you are and what you think, right? That it's let me attack first and let me try to learn and understand somewhere down the line. Or not at all. Or not at all. Hmm. Because if we can't agree and if, 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 this is, if this is what I believe and you believe something different, then yeah. you're the enemy. What's your sense of where that comes from? 
especially if it's a decade old. I mean, we've always had problems, but I'm saying the degree, the emphasis on that, I agree with you. I think the emphasis is now much stronger on like this, you know. I think a lot of it has to do, unfortunately, with with media, with social media, with different types of media and, and, and this this narrative that has to be created in order to really lean in on subscribers, listeners, viewers, ratings, the further right I go or the further left I go, the more people really tune in and, and, and they, they believe into this message and to this approach. Yet what we should really be doing is, is listening to the left, listening to the right, and trying to find those things in the middle that people can agree on. That people understand or know that, that and, and by the way, immigration is that topic, right? People on the left, people on the right, both agree that the, that the immigration system in our country is broken. It's the one thing they can kind of agree on. That, and ironically to your earlier point, the fact that social media is a problem. They can agree on that too. The solutions are various, but... Exactly. But then we now need to make sure that we're holding our legislators accountable for that change and, and those things that need to be fixed. Not leaning into what makes us separate and how those things divide. This may be a bit provocative, but you know, answer oh at your own peril. Do you think that, um, that that idea of this sort of social media mindset that has caused, you know, sure, a lot of connectivity and maybe a lot of good on some level, but it's also created a lot of just thrash and chaos. Has that gone inside the church too? Um, I don't, not inside the church, mm -hmm. but the people that consume are inside the church. So inevitably it's, it's inside in the, the church. It's in the pews. It's in the pews. It's in the pews. And, and yes, to a certain extent, some of our, some of our clergy are also, you know, tapped into this and dialed yeah. into this. And, you know, I, I, I understand it. I, I get it. I also feel that there's there's a, a calling that we need from our spiritual leaders that sometimes, again, falls second to the politics or the rhetoric or the 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 change in culture. You know, whether it's it's something simple like like how a, a neighborhood is is transforming culturally or 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 simply the 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 fear of creating more of a political divide because, you know, I, I don't know if I should put the American flag, you know, inside the church because will that cause a divide because of my, the constituency of my parish? Or, Isn't that crazy? I think we've seen that in the last probably four or five years is like suddenly the flag became a, this sort of question mark yeah, or outrightly used in ways that maybe that were not, you know, I'm sure the founders wouldn't have liked, but it just, I don't ever remember having that thought, but it crosses my mind too. And yet me being as much of a, an emotional nut as I am, like I hear, you know, the pledge of allegiance and the star spangled banner at a baseball game. And Amen, I get emotional brother. because Amen. it's, I mean, it's, it's, you know, what's given For me sure. everything I have. It's, it's this country. I, mm. I can't imagine having grown up in, in Mexico, had my mom not come here, mm -hmm. yet when World Cup comes around, I put on my Mexico jersey, right? Because that's just how it is. Yeah. I, mean, I cheer for, you know, home country, but then, you know, and then the, Colombia is close second. And then whoever speaks Spanish towards the end, sure. you know what I mean? You're sure. like going for Spain. Sure. Um, uh -huh. Look, I think that, um, you know, going back to the, the kind of the social media piece of it, I think the reason there's a spiritual piece to this as well for me. That is, um, the faith is about accompaniment. I mean, a lot of the work, the policy, the things that you do are about seeing people, recognizing for who they, who, recognizing them for who they are, recognizing them as as someone within with integrity, and with dignity, and then allowing through the work that you do and the policy that you do for other people to see the same thing. In a way, social media is kind of an anathema to that. If you think about it, right? So social media is like, let me get in and get out. Let me drop a little bomb. Let me drop a little POV. Let me drop a little you know, tweet or share text or whatever it may be or TikTok and then just get out of here. It's sort of the opposite of accompaniment in a way. It's like, is there, is there a spiritual piece that you think about here? I mean, there's definitely a culture of, of a, a behind the keyboard culture of let me just, you know, throw this out there and then, you know, I, I don't have to, I can turn off the alerts and I don't ever have to come back to it, but I've said my piece and, 
and or or just I'm just gonna you know constantly go back and forth with people over over the internet and 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 the keyboard is your you know your arsenal there yeah when I was in marketing and people were trying to figure out social media my whole point was like look social media is fine and great but ultimately social media means nothing if we're not connected as people first right like the whole benefit and the whole and the whole they can't replace it that's the whole for sure. value of social media true engagement in social media is not just following and liking and retweeting or reposting but it's knowing who's the person on the other end and how can you bring each other up how can you collaborate how can you do more and that was just from a very basic marketing standpoint. But we forget the very basic stuff. That's the stuff we should be focusing on. I agree. But like the the whole idea is that this should enable a better relationship based on one you already have, not become a version of a relationship that lacks all of the hallmarks of what makes relationships real, right? So like we need to remember the stuff that you just said as the fundamental. And if you now incorporate faith into that, my gosh, what a better way than to use social media, use these channels, use these avenues to profess your faith, to align yourself with people who may or may not necessarily see eye to eye with you, but to find the commonality in the things that you do agree with and, and, and you, you can support mm-hmm. and try to grow and try to build on that. It's tough because faith, religion, and social media, again, have this stigma of being only on a, on, on a certain plane and you know, you, you can lose friends, you can lose family, you can, it's, it's weaponized. I don't, I, I can't go so far as to say that at some point in the future, we would have a diocesan office of social media, but I do think that the idea of communication on these platforms is bec- both good and bad is becoming more important for how the church gets her message and her work out to the world. And I feel that oftentimes people look at these at these technologies and these platforms almost like, well, it's like a another way to do a flyer or do a website or whatever. But there's something different about these in the sense of how connected we are, how and on a global level, not just here, but like globally connected. And yet how when these platforms are used in ways that, you know, that are not optimal what kind of damage they can create. I mean, look at what happened, you know, with the Capitol, look at what happened, look at what's happening now with, you know, with all these platforms coming under all this tremendous government scrutiny. Again, the thing that people seem to agree on on both sides of the aisles, we've got to do something about these companies. Absolutely. And they're the biggest companies on planet earth. There's five, two, there's five trillion, five um, companies that have more than a trillion dollars in cap in market capitalization. Uh, I'm sorry, six of them. Five of those are American. Of those five, four are communications companies, right? Google, Amazon, Facebook, and um, Apple, yep. basically. And w- w- the, the companies that size and with that co- kind of influence have never existed before in human history. Like it's a new thing, right? Absolutely. So so I just, I feel that there's going to be more about, on, on a more formal level, about how we contend with these things for, for the church moving forward. And the crazy thing about that is the more these companies grow and the bigger they get, if they don't have an understanding of cultural nuances, right, like the Latino culture, uh, like faith, then they run and they go and they're not slowing down for, yeah. for anyone else, right? But what is our place? How do we inject mm. ourselves into that space and make sure that it's done in a way that's responsible, authentic, measurable? Yeah. All of these things that need to happen to ensure that we don't, you know, you don't get left out. I've got two thoughts on that. One, the, the first one is um, what I tell all young people who are thinking about getting into media or specifically social media or digital media is my advice to them is to not assume or take anything for granted. And, you know, if you come in as a new engineering student or a new accounting student or whatever it may be, you walk into these things, you're like, well, I'm going to learn. They've been doing this for a thousand years and they kind of know what they're up to, right? But I think that, you know, people coming into social media and digital media need to question everything, every assumption that's there. The ground that they're walking on may not be the best ground to walk on, right? Mm -hmm. So it's not like accounting or the law or whatever that it just builds on itself. So I think people need to be coming in, need to be very skeptical and they need to question the better ways to do things. That's kind of my advice on, on, on how to look at it. You know, if I ever get asked of walking into one of these new environments. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and, and. Granted, even somebody, you know, like a, 
uh, Zuckerberg, who, mm-hmm. you know, years ago was saying, no, Facebook is open and free and clear and we're not going to change. And, and, you know, th- there's nothing there and didn't realize that, uh, you know, in some way, in some capacity, the platform was being used against him. And now it's like all of a sudden there's an awakening and, a, and an aha moment of like, wait a minute, there's a tremendous amount of responsibility that comes with this. Yeah. How do we manage it? And I think that to your question about like how can uh, Latinos in particular, people from diverse backgrounds contribute to this, like they have to. That's like the biggest area of development I think that that's left to have. Just a simple example. I share this with my boys because I, rec- I was Android my whole life and I recently, you know, recently, like a year and a half ago, got my first iPhone, right? Mm-hmm. And, and I'm always complaining about, about Apple. And of course they're saying like, you're crazy. This is amazing. Um, and one of the things that I said, like, let me give you an example of how the Latino, uh, product developer could come into play when you're use when you use messenger on iPhone, right? You're messaging somebody, texting somebody. Yep. I'm, I'll be having conversations. I'm sure you do the same. You're texting somebody in Spanish and then you text another person in English, right? Yep. Like I do, I do this all the time, but but iOS, Apple, assumes that when I change my keyboard, it must mean I'm traveling somewhere because then it wants me to talk with that keyboard to everybody. So it's the same keyboard across all my contacts. I get to pick which one it is. It's either English or it's Spanish. Mm-hmm. Whereas Android would have the keyboard selection level at the level of the user. So if I'm talking to my mom in Spanish and then I talk to you in English, it would always remember that. But I'm thinking of like, why is that different? maybe it's because there was a developer product guy whoever it was Mm. who like had that sensibility and said hey man in this country we talk like all the time to people in different languages and you can't just change a keyboard and change it for everyone because that's not the reality of being an american in 2021 that may be what it means to be dutch or something in holland you're either going to have dutch or whatever other language and so it's like it's ideas like that right who like if you come up with that sensibility you're more apt to build a product that Mm -hmm. that that reflects that that sensibility than than not. So I think that we need a lot more input and influence from our community into all these places. And it is woefully absent, my friend. I got to tell you, I've looked at the data. It's like not even close. Sure. Like who's in these companies, Latino-wise, like way, 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 way under index. But I think it's critical. Yeah, no, and and I think more so there's this understanding that that culture can kind of come from anywhere and everywhere, right? And... The responsibility that we have as people to make sure that every single little voice gets heard is tremendous. And in the digital space, my gosh, even more so. Yeah. Even more so. Yeah. Isaac, what's left to do? I mean, it's never, I'm sure, done. But like when you look out and you go, okay, here's what, you know, good looks like, back to those kind of KPIs, and you think about the role that you have, like areas of immediate focus, like what is one of those things that increases, when you look out into the future, is increasing an emphasis that you're excited to kind of focus on in the work that you do for the diocese? I think one of the things that's that's most interesting is getting people to understand that immigration reform definitely is possible. It may not be comprehensive the way we want it to be, um, but I think there is a shift in empathy and in change and in people understanding that, you know, especially what we just lived with through the pandemic and, and are continuing to live with, I should say, frontline workers, people who put their life on the line to ensure that our that our country stays operational, that we have our goods and services, the whole DACA community and what that means. I think that's been a big transformational change in terms of, of people opening up their hearts to understanding that there needs to be more done there. Mm. When, how, that's the that's the nuance, right? That's the strategic part of do you fold that into uh, existing legislation and, and pass it in some, you know, budget bill? Does it is it a standalone thing to yeah. to send a message or or do you do you wrap the whole thing into something? I, I you know I also feel that as these generations are, are growing and as, as I mean, like like my story is really kind of DACA before DACA was DACA. Right, right? true. It wasn't so, called that, but you lived right, it. Right. So now that you have all of these DACA recipients who are in this place and have grown up this way, their lives are, are, are hanging in the balance of what's going to happen with our legislators. Like you can't ignore that. Mm. You can't, you can't put that off to the side and say, you know, this is more important or that's more important or here, here or there. It's, it's, you know, if you continue to ignore it, 
something's going to happen where you're going to have to be faced to, to really take it on. Mm-hmm. And the party that, that figures that out and addresses it and, and learns to incorporate that into their approach is going to stand to benefit. I think the key there is that you know, people have to bear in mind the fact that we're talking about human beings, human, human persons. And, you know, if you're Christian in particular, although not exclusively, people of goodwill can agree with this as well. But if you're Christian in particular, you know that whenever there's a human person involved, there's a, a greater obligation to not just try to relegate things like a complex issue like immigration into a very narrow box like my political party says X, because that's just not the way that it works when we're dealing with, with human beings. Well, go ahead. And then the flip side of yeah. that is also the responsibility that every single individual has to act as if, right? Mm. Um, my, my first couple of weeks on the job, I was, uh, we were at, in East L.A., at the Guadalupe celebration and I'm passing out materials on, on immigration and you know, what it means to like have your things in order. And, and is this, uh, uh, one of my paisanos comes up and it's like, ah, they're, they don't want to give us immigration and they don't want to, and they don't want to really kind of complaining and like, ah, and I'm like, my friend, what are you doing to make sure that you have your place? Have you paid taxes? Have you learned the language? Um, are you abiding by all the laws in this country? Like if I was a judge, what do you have to show and to prove to me right now yeah. that you've earned your place here? Because just by showing up here doesn't necessarily mean that you have the right to be here and to be a part of, of, of society. Earn it. Feel free to earn it. Feel free to stand up. Yes, you're a hard worker. Nobody's taking that away from yeah. you. But this country is all about what else are you doing? How Amen. else are you contributing? And you just exemplified the point, right? sort of this idea of dignity, of compassion, of being mindful of the immigrant, of taking care of all that, all those things that we've said earlier, and this other, the personal responsibility that people have to um, to do their part, right, to, to use your point. Those, both of those have sadly been relegated to, um, at least individually, to the rallying cry of one or another political party. But the reality of it is, is they both need to be spoken of together. And I think that's where this kind of very Catholic approach to immigration that you're advancing is the closest thing to the solution in my mind that that exists, is considering these different dimensions of it. And the coolest part about that example is that is that even even in that Catholic moment and being there with Our Lady of Guadalupe and, and kind of, you know, surrounded by that, the, the aha moment that sure. this individual had all of a sudden and you know, as he's walking away and talking to his family members going, ah, ya me regañaron acá porque no. You know what I mean? It was sure. like an understanding that like, yeah, you know what? He's right. I, I do have this responsibility and all right, I get it. I, I, you know, I need to do my part. So, you know, it's, it's, it's the best we can do. Makes sense. Well, I know we got to get you on your way with your son, you busy guy. You got a lot of things to do. Um, we've got uh, our segment rapid fire coming up called wait what, but before we get to that, yeah. How can people follow your work? How can they follow what you're doing or get in touch with you based on what they've heard today? Um, I don't want to say follow. I, I, I definitely don't want to seem unapproachable, but um, very straightforward. Uh, contact the diocese. You know, it, it, maybe this goes against all better judgment, but uh, call me direct. Mm-hmm. Um, my cell phone number, happy and free to give it out, 323-403-7353. Immigration at LA. Uh, hyphen uh, archdiocese.org. Uh, both very great ways and very direct ways to get a hold of me. My office is responsible for providing resources, doing advocacy work, speaking to our legislators about the need for change, and also educating our communities, both the, the immigrant community on their responsibility for, for being upstanding people in this country and also for people who maybe are curious and don't empathize with the immigrant journey sure. and, and, and and need to better understand why that's important. So I just love the fact that you're open to both of those. That's awesome too. A- absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And, uh, and you know, again, my, my son's here. He knows all too well that, um, you know, I'm happy to take calls any time of day, night, whatever is necessary. But, um, but I also want to be very mindful that, uh, you know, this is important for our community and, and it's, it's, it's my passion. Well, the other, the other good hack for anybody who wants to get in touch is you've got, as a good marketer, you've got great search engine optimization. So just type in <laughs> Isaac Cuevas and you, that's who comes up. It's actually you. It's like amazing uh, SEO. Yeah. Um, but uh, until, anyway. until your son and his friends start uh, Googling you and, um, and they're, you know, making fun of the fact that you're wearing sunglasses and some weird picture that's like. I think it looks pretty good, though. Dang. I saw the picture. I know what you're talking about. <laughs> All right. You ready to play? 
Yeah, absolutely. You ready to play Wait What? Here we go. All right. So question number one, Isaac. Which of the apostles would have been the best at running a first century Judea publicity and promotions agency? Which of the apostles? Would have been the best at running a PR shop in the first century. Um, Judas comes to mind only because I th what? <laughs> I think of <laughs> some of the people that I've worked with in this wow. business. Okay, love it. Um, yeah. But... Um, True, technically correct. He was an apostle. I mean, absolutely. I... Uh, I, I hate to be cynical in that way, but you want my honest answer. And, I, and you mean Judas Iscariot is what you're saying? Uh, yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, I, I, but um, but you know, I mean, I think um, I think every apostle has their way of that that would have been great at creating a boutique form of reaching people. Okay. Fair enough. There you go. Perfect. All right. Question number two: If we could go back in time to the early 2000s when Mel Gibson was planning The Passion of the Christ <laughs> and you were consulting on that film, which Latino actor would you have recommended for the role of Jesus? Which Latino actor would I have recommended for the role of Jesus? So this would have been 2004? Four. We were probably planning at 2003, but somewhere in that vicinity, 2003, 2004. <sighs> what Latino actor? Um, your geez, son, your son's trying a, to push something into your, into your, uh, into I, your. I know what thought he's, process. I, I, I know who he's going to say because it's 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 a topic of contention at our household. Um, I did a lot of work with Verastigi, and Verastigi's a, a friend. Love Eduardo. Um, however, I feel like if Eduardo would have had that kind of transformational moment, then he, we wouldn't have who we have today. Fair. Um. Latino actor. It it it's tough to say, mm -hmm. but I'm I'm thinking back to the time, and I feel like if if we would have gotten somebody who was a little universal, right, and not not so. I mean, my gosh, I grew. I mean, I grew up with Eric Estrada for crying out loud when that sure. when that was you know chips and that was the Pancherello. only like, Latino representation. Yeah, and he played an Italian um, <laughs> on TV. But I don't know, man. I really don't know. That's a that's a great question. I mean, there's there's I mean, Caviezel just embodied that role and 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 how that came across. Which, by the way, sorry, so really quick yeah. uh, uh, note here. I was at a I was at a retreat one time. No joke. I walk in, and it's Jim Caviezel, and Mike Piazza, and Eduardo, and all of these just like uber Catholic guys that are like all just sitting there, just hanging out. And it was so surreal because when I looked over at Jim Caviezel, right above him to the to 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 the to the left of him was this image of Jesus up on the wall at this retreat center. Wow. And I felt like I was in this weird, like, sure. like dream kind of moment. But I'm sure he gets that all the time. I'm Can you imagine sure. that guy walking around the streets of like the Philippines or something? I mean, forget about it. It's going to be uh, interesting. I'm sure he's actually done that. I'm sure. I'm so sure, this, of this, course. So. So, you, this is a no, you're not going to answer on this one. I, <laughs> the first in the history of living the call that we do not get an answer on. Well, it's okay. You get that distinction. I understand that. I am... I'll come back to it. I'll You're going to withhold. I, I'm, I'm, let, we're going to push it to the, to the end. Okay, All right. perfect. All right, so final question. Yeah. Question number three. Isaac, as Catholics, we believe that we can be purified and draw closer to God through challenges and difficulties. As such, which of the following professional roles would allow for the greatest purification? Emergency room physician, bomb disposal technician, or moderator of the Curia for a Catholic diocese? <laughs> As Catholics, we believe we can be purified and draw closer to God through challenges and difficulties. As such, which of the following professional roles would allow for the greatest purification? ER doctor, bomb disposal, disposal tech, or vicar of the Curia, or moderator of the, of the Curia, vicar general? Uh, this one is not so hard, and I'm going to put it to you in order. All right. Let's All do right, it. Because it's a uh, bomb tech, for sure. Okay. 
uh, top. Why? Because uh, you're probably not thinking of how Catholic you are when you are a bomb tech. You're just becoming a bomb tech, and thus by that near that the the, the fact that you're doing the work that you're doing draws you closer to the faith. Um, uh, director of the Curia, because obviously the proximity, everything else, and you have to know and see and understand how everything is happening around you. Doctor Laos, because doctors feel like they're so close to God already, and I know this because of my <laughs> wife, that I feel like they're they already the, there. They are, they are the they are the most um, they are the most removed. Okay. Um, so so there you go. Got it. Bomb tech. Uh, moderator the Curia and ER doctor in that order. And ER doctor in that order. Very good. So now if I can go back to the question about what Latino actor, and this is going to be uh, both a dumb and a very sincere uh, answer, I would say Chespirito. Chespirito. And, wow. and, and here's How why. old would he have been in 2004? Uh, just old enough. And probably passed away, I think. <laughs> I don't think he would have passed for 33. No, but... It's all right. The, it is a time machine. We can go way the, back. The, 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 we're, and, and the reason why, because in order to, to, to resurface somebody so iconic and so, so instrumental in the upbringing and the culture of, of, of an entire generation to bring him back to faith and to have him anchored in faith, not, no, not even sure if he was that devout, right? Let's be honest and, and, and truthful here. I don't but, know. Um, I think from a marketing standpoint, incredible and tremendous and just such a way to garner so much uh, added value. That would have been a he- genius move, by the way, if it, if the if the uh, you know time space continuum held up, because it wouldn't work for that movie. But it, you're, to your point, it would have like detonated this nostalgia piece. It would have been super transcendent. I mean, even for me, you know, Colombian kid, but I grew up. Those are my years that I lived in Mexico. Chespirito was like, I mean, you know, it's part of my DNA. You know what I mean? Um, and, and it would I, have definitely rang a bell. And I was gonna say El Santo, but he would have had to take off his mask. <laughs> right. That doesn't so, work. So yeah. Very good. All right, my friend. Well, thank you for playing the game. Those will go down into uh, posterity. Great. Um, and yeah, we'll play them back and uh, see how well we did. But anyway, I uh, I do want to obviously thank you for coming here, for being on the show, for your ministries, for having the courage also to step out and to listen to the call and to you know leave behind a, a certain type of career and things. It takes a lot of courage and a lot of guts to do that. And I'm glad you're out there for us, brother. I could tell you that. So um, thank, you, thank you for doing it, what it, you do. It means it means a lot to me, especially coming from you, knowing your background, knowing your upbringing, knowing that our our uh, uh, you know our history, our past, kind of kind of crossed in, in in weird ways without knowing, and and that we're here. It means a lot coming from you. Thank you. Well, may God continue to prosper all of your work and your ministries. And for you out there, remember to subscribe, share this show with your friends and family, and we will see you again next time on Living the Call. If you enjoyed this episode of Living the Call, please remember to subscribe and give us a five-star review. Tell someone you love about the show and spread the word. Living the Call is available on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. You can learn more about the organization behind the show by searching for the Catholic Association of Latino Leaders on any social platform or by going directly to call-usa.org. That's C-A-L-L-U-S-A.org. Living the Call is produced by Manu Kasten and Diego Carranza and our friends at Juan Diego Networks. God bless you and thank you for listening.